All right, Genesis 21 is where we pick back up. Uh, at this point, remember, we uh, have seen the Lord after 25 long years finally answer the promise that Abraham and Sarah have been waiting for for a son. And uh, it tells us there as we looked at chapter 21, we made our way down as far as verse 13 and just sort of again summarizing and bringing us back up to speed that the Lord it tells us there visited Sarah and it says that the Lord finally did for Sarah as he had spoken and Sarah conceived and at the set time it tells us there of which God had spoken and God had ordained finally they received this promised child that they had been waiting for for 25 long years and just we can't even begin to fathom what it would feel like to wait for something from the Lord to wait on a promise of God to hear him reaffirm and speak the same thing to us again and again and maybe in some ways you can relate maybe there's something that the Lord has spoken to you about and you know it's something that's a part of his plan for your life and you've been waiting in faith and he keeps continuing to kind of fire the same shot across your bow and you keep hearing the same thing and hearing the same thing but yet in the midst of that process uh, there's still that that time delay where the Lord is waiting for the set time and that's the so the really the, the so important thing in these kind of processes is that we don't try and get ahead of the Lord that we wait on God's timing and that's often a very difficult thing but after 25 long years they finally received this promised child no doubt they're they're celebrating they're enjoying this wonderful thing and then we saw as we ended up our study last time that it came to that time of really what would kind of be like a rite of passage where uh, Isaac was then being weaned. And during this rite of passage or sort of feast or type ceremony as Isaac is being weaned and everyone is gathered together, it says that Sarah saw the son of Hagar, Ishmael, remember, scoffing uh, at his younger brother. Now this time, again, Ishmael's probably in his teens, maybe somewhere 13 to 16 years old and he's scoffing at all the attention being given to this younger brother and we talked briefly of how this picture between Ishmael and Isaac as you get into the New Testament with the book of Galatians there Paul shows how this all is a fitting picture of the law and a life lived under the law as a comparison a life lived uh, by faith and by the Spirit of God and all the time uh, a life that is lived by the law and under the law will always scoff at the life of faith uh, and it will always cause us to want to question a life of faith and what it means to just live by the spirit rather than trying to approach God by the law or rules and rituals and here is uh, Ishmael is scoffing at Isaac this is sort of the finally the the, the camel that, that breaks or the you know the straw that breaks the camel's back for Sarah and at this point she's finally done and remember we left off with her telling Abraham that's it cast out this bondwoman and her son, remove them from our family. Uh, they can't dwell together, she said there in verse 10, cast out this bondwoman and her son, for this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, namely with Isaac. And the matter, remember, was very displeasing in Abraham's sight because this was his son, and a son who he had been raising, though it was a child that was conceived in a wrong way. Nonetheless, this was his flesh and blood. He was still the father and emotionally, this was difficult for Abraham to have to process as Sarah was now asking for them to be put out of the family so that there wouldn't be a conflict between these two children and who would be the heir. But God said to Abraham, this is where we left off last time, do not let it be displeasing in your sight because of the lad or because of the bondwoman. Whatever Sarah has said to you, listen to her voice. For in Isaac, again, God reaffirms, your seed shall be called, yet I will also make a nation of the son of the bondwoman because he is your seed. So God tells Abraham, listen, Abraham, uh, contrary to the way it happened the first time when you listened to your wife's opinion and advice and idea and you did the wrong thing. Abraham, there's always balance in all the things. This time, what your wife is saying is right. And though it is difficult for you to process and accept emotionally, though it doesn't agree logically for you what is being asked to be done, this is consistent ultimately with the plan of God and with the purposes of God. So listen to her voice and there must come a separation. You must put Ishmael out of the house 
it's the time for this so that there wouldn't be this conflict within the home regarding who the true heir was in the family. So Abraham now having to face this difficult situation once again where God is another time asking him for a separation. And this has kind of been a process God's taken Abraham through, like multiple tests. Years and years ago, God told him, listen, you need to leave your family and leave your homeland. And he had to go through a time of separation where he departed from his comfort zone and he departed from his family and he left. Many years later, once he got to the promised land, he had, it seems, this close kinship with his nephew Lot. And remember, there came a time, circumstantially, where God said, okay, Abraham, it's time for you and Lot to separate. And he's going to hinder you, and he's going to hold you back from the plan of God being fulfilled. And your relationship with him is going to be a hindrance to God's plan in your life. So again, a time of separation, and Abraham and Lot had to part company. It was another time of separation, another emotional difficulty for Abraham to have to separate himself from something he was attached to. And now here again, we find the third time Abraham dealing with this same thing where God now tells him with one of his sons, listen, you need to put him out of the house. It's the right thing to do. It's difficult emotionally, but you need to have a time of separation once again. And as I said last time as we left off, I think all of those things really were a preparation for what's going to happen when you get to Genesis chapter 22, verse 1, where God gives to Abraham, as we'll see tonight, the greatest test of sacrifice and faith and obedience he could have ever imagined. And I think it was those earlier things that God took him through. It was those prior tests and acts of obedience where God said, listen, despite what you feel and despite what you think, this is the right thing to walk out the will of God, that God was using those things to get him ready for the day when he faced the ultimate test. And I think a lot of times the Lord does that. He never gives us a test that we're not prepared to take. And that's so important, that, that God is loving, and God's a good and gracious Father. And God always has us prepared. Now, we may enter into something and think, this is too hard, it's unbearable and overwhelming. But God knows, and God has prepared us, and everything we're dealing with today, many times, is just preparing us for next week, next month, next year, what the Lord sees down the road. And he so graciously, I think, takes Abraham through this process, but yet a difficult occasion here where he has to, again, put out his own son and Hagar, the handmaiden that was there with them. Verse 14 tells us, so Abraham, notice this is obedience. He rose early in the morning. He didn't think over it too long. He didn't keep processing it. He didn't keep meditating and trying to dwell on it because if he did, his logic and his reason would have kept contradicting what he knew the will of God. This is wise obedience to act quickly. When you know the Lord has spoken, a lot of times if it's going to be a difficult thing, it's best to just confront the thing head on. And especially when it comes a lot of times to dealing with difficulties that deal with interrelational and emotional type things. A lot of times when we have to face them, because it probably was not easy going to Hagar and going to Ishmael and saying, listen, you need to leave. We need to part company. And I mean, that had to be very difficult on a relationship standpoint. And a lot of times when we're called to do something difficult in relationships, though it may be the will of God to confront someone or to break company with someone, to end a relationship that's not the will of God for our life, the best thing to do is to just confront the thing head on. Listen, I don't like confrontation any more than anybody else. But we can't be afraid of confrontation. We must obey the Lord. The Bible says the fear of man is a snare, but he who trusts the Lord shall be safe. And when these times come, difficult as they are, we need to just rise early and act upon exactly what the Lord has said. And here it says that Abraham rose early in the morning. He took bread and a skin of water that is like a, a, a jug of water equivalent to that, which really isn't that much if you think about it. And put it on her shoulder, and he gave it to the boy, to Hagar, and sent her away. And then she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. So, really, if you think about all Abraham had, quite a wealthy man, it seems almost kind of stingy what he gives them as he sends them away. Tells us here that he sends them out into the wilderness. The idea is to go to the next nearby civilization to find their way. 
But look what he gives them. It says he gave them bread and one skin of water. Uh, I don't know, but perhaps in some way, Abraham realized, or the Lord was conveying to Abraham. Remember, we read that Abraham was the friend of God, which means the Lord spoke things to Abraham. And, And maybe Abraham realized that this is a time, a moment, a season where, as a part of putting them out, from under my care, it's also something that God is sovereignly using to teach them how to become dependent upon God. And they have to learn how to become dependent upon God even as I have. And so therefore, Abraham sent them with what was sufficient, it seems, to at least you know make the journey to the next society or area of civilization, but he doesn't overload them, and perhaps because he just realizes, look, no matter how much I give to them, if they don't learn to depend upon God, they're ultimately going to miss the lesson and the process that God wants to take everybody through, where we would learn how to personally be dependent upon God. So they go out with very little, and it seems by the word wander there, it almost indicates that they began to lose their way, lost direction, and their supplies run out rather quickly. Verse 15 says, The water in the skin was used up, and Hagar placed the boy under one of the shrubs, and then she went and sat down across from him in a distance of about a bow shot, for she said to herself, Let me not see the death of the boy. So she sat opposite him and lifted up her voice and wept. So as they're journeying, they quickly use up their supplies Again, we don't know why, but for whatever reason, it seems that Ishmael, the young teenage boy, was weakening a lot quicker than his mother was. Again, maybe because trying to be sacrificial, he was letting his mother have the majority of the supplies. Maybe there was some other reason, but it seems that he becomes weak and sickly rather quick. So she sets him down. She kind of moves him underneath some shrubs to give him some shade. And it says she goes away to distance. And the reason why is because like any mother, she says, I can't bear to watch my son breathe his last breath. I just, I just can't do it. I just, and she's weeping and, she, and she's brokenhearted at this point. And here's uh, Hagar at this point, And think about it. Now she's all alone. And, and really, she's nothing more in a lot of ways than a victim of circumstance. Again, not to say that she was perfect by any means, but it's pretty obvious when you read the account in the book of Genesis that Hagar becomes a victim of circumstance, really of the bad choices of Abraham and Sarah. So here she is, the one who's really the victim of circumstances. She's hurting. She's all alone. She's in the middle of a wilderness. And here she is weeping and grieving because of these things. Reminds me of Psalm 56, verse 8. It says, you number my wanderings and you put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? So here she is in the middle of a wilderness. She's crying. She's all alone. But yet God sees her tears. And God's aware of what she's going through and why she's going through what she is because of the own mistreatment and misfortunes that she encountered living in that home. And verse 17 says, as she's there lifting up her voice and weeping, it says, God heard the voice of the lad, and potentially he was speaking to God, crying out for help as well. And the angel of God called to Hagar out of heaven and said to her, what ails you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad, and hold him with your hand, for I will make him a great nation. And then God, verse 19, it says, Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the lad a drink. So here they are, they're in the middle of this wilderness experience, much like you and I are at times too, right? And sometimes we find ourselves in a difficult place, in a wilderness experience, we're all alone, we're struggling, maybe we're the victim of circumstance, something's happened to us, we've been wounded, we've been mistreated, and now we're the one out here in this hot, dry, difficult time struggling to get by, and again, we need to realize that sometimes when we find ourselves in the wilderness, struggling in hot desert times and difficult seasons of our life, sometimes those are appointed by the Lord. You know, there are occasions where I find myself and you find yourself saying, I just, man, I feel like I'm in a desert. I just feel like I'm in such a desert, like a dry time. Well, truth of the matter is that may be God's intention. 
Sometimes that doesn't necessarily mean something's wrong. Doesn't really mean we've done something wrong. I mean, granted, that could be an indication. The children of Israel wandered in the wilderness and struggled because of their unbelief and disobedience. But that's not always the case. Sometimes you and I may be in a dry season and a difficult time so that our roots would sink down deeper and search further and deeper for the things of God like a tree does in a time it goes through a drought. Its roots drive further down to search and to look for a deeper source of water. And sometimes we go through a dry time because God is wanting to teach us things in those times of what it means to depend upon him and to look to him. It's interesting, it tells us verse 19, as they're there, it says, God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water in the middle of the wilderness. Now, one of two things, either God created a well right in the middle of the wilderness to provide for their need and to satisfy their thirst, or it was something that was always there, but God just opened her eyes to see it. And I look at this and I think, what a beautiful illustration, whether it's that God created exactly what she needed in the difficult, dry hour of her life to sustain her, or whether God just opened her eyes in a whole new way to let her see what she wasn't seeing in the midst of her tears and her pain and her grief and her struggle, that she just wasn't seeing it. Either way, it's still beautiful that in the dry, difficult hour, God opened her eyes and she saw something that she had never seen before. And she saw the provision of the Lord in ways she had never seen before. And she found what she needed to sustain her in that difficulty. And she heard the voice of the Lord. And many times the Lord does these through our own difficult and dry seasons. So they found water. They drank. They no doubt were refreshed. And it says, verse 20, So God was with the lad, and he grew and dwelt in the wilderness, and he became an archer. So that became his profession, it seems, like a warrior-type individual to no doubt sustain himself and the civilization he would establish, Ishmael. And he dwelt in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Now, at this point, Ishmael's account kind of drops off. We get very little information about him through the rest of the book of Genesis because the Bible wants to trace the line of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob through which God will ultimately accomplish his plans. So verse 22, we come back to Abraham, and it says, It came to pass at that time that Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, spoke to Abraham, saying, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me by God that you will not deal falsely with me, with my offspring or with my posterity, but that according to the kindness that I have done to you, that you will do to me and to the land in which you have dwelt. And Abraham said, I swear. In other words, I give my word. Now, very possible this is the same Abimelech that is referred to back in chapter 20 that we saw there. Remember where Abraham pulled the same maneuver and repeated a failure and a sin from earlier in his life in a duplicate manner where he lied about Sarah, remember, being his wife, and then ultimately God revealed the whole thing. And Abimelech, remember, was so angry, and he, he, you know, he, he rebukes Abraham and, and basically says to him, listen, get out of here. And, and, and again, the whole same mess took place once again in Abraham's life. Now, interestingly enough, uh, once things were smooth, I remember in that process, God also spoke to Abimelech and allowed Abimelech to see that though Abraham was a flawed man and he had mistakes and he had a feet of clay, that nonetheless, God's hand was upon his life. And though he was imperfect, that the Lord's hand and anointing was still upon his life. And here now, this dialogue begins to take place again. And notice Abimelech and Phicol, who seems to be sort of like the, again, the military commander of his territory there, they come to Abraham, it seems, verse 23, sort of seeking like a, a military truce or a military a peace pact saying, listen, when you were with us, we didn't harm you, we did you no trouble, so promise to us the same thing that for us and for our descendants and generations ahead, that things will be peaceful between us, that there won't be conflict. And interesting, one of the things that prompted that verse 22 is they realized the hand of God was upon Abraham's life. Notice in verse 22, they said of Abraham, we realize God is with you. 
in all that you do. Now, again, what that means exactly, I don't know. But apparently, somehow, they could tell as they looked at Abraham's life, this man of faith, they could tell by looking at his life, it is obvious that the hand of God is upon your life. It's evident that the presence of the Lord is with you in the things that you do. And they could just see the evidence of the presence of God in his life and that the Lord's hand was upon him it says, in all that he did. In everything that he was doing, they realized God was involved with this man's life. And I think, man, what a wonderful thing. Would to God that people would recognize in our lives, maybe even without us having to say a word, that people would look at you and your job and look at you and you know your neighborhood and your family and your school and all the places you are, and that people would say, you know what, I can tell God's with you. I can sense there's something different about your life. It's evident that the Lord's involvement is in your life in every way, rather than people you know, not being able to sense. I pray that people can sense the presence of God with us, because there's something very powerful about that. And it creates opportunities, and it gives people a healthy reverence and respect for God. So they, they seek Abraham on these grounds. We can tell God is with you. Your God is behind you, so therefore, offer us a peace treaty that there would be no conflict between us. Abraham commits to that. In verse 25, he takes occasion in conversation to deal with another little bit of business. It says, Abraham rebuked Abimelech because of a well of water which Abimelech's servants had seized. And if you're familiar with the Middle Eastern area, you know that water sources are extremely valuable. So apparently Abraham had dug this well it had been sort of captured and seized by Abimelech's servants and taken away, though Abraham and his servants had dug it. So Abraham rebukes Abimelech for this act. And Abimelech said, I don't know who's done this thing, and you didn't tell me, and nor had I heard of it until today. I don't know what you're talking about, he says. I wasn't aware that this had happened. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two of them made a covenant. And Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock by themselves, and Abimelech asked, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs which you set by themselves? And Abraham answered, You will take these seven ewe lambs from my hand, that they may be witness that I have dug this well. In other words, he says, Look, I want these to be a clear evidence to you, and I'm willing to make the sacrifice, he says, to indicate in a very clear and ethical way between the two of us, that this is a well that I dug and so that we won't deal with the same problem down the road. And therefore he called that place Beersheba, which literally could be translated uh, well of the oath or well of seven. There's debate over that, but again, naming it after the contractual relationship and arrangement that was made. And interesting to see, isn't it? All the way back into this time period, we think, oh, you know, ancient, ancient civilization. But what's Abraham doing? He's making a contract. He really is just very wisely making a contractual arrangement with someone over a well. And it's, it's sort of a, a business contractual arrangement. And again, here's a man of God doing this. I think a lot of times as Christians, we think that we need to cast common sense to the window. Listen, when we make business arrangements or real estate arrangements, or we should be upright and, and, and very clear. These are the terms. These are the conditions. And, and there's nothing wrong with guaranteeing in a contractual way or there's nothing unspiritual. Abraham says, look, let's make a contractual arrangement. These lambs indicate this is my well. It's not your well. And, and, and there was an arrangement that was made here. And Abraham is a man of faith saw nothing unspiritual, but a wisdom in doing this. So verse 32 says, They made a covenant there at Beersheba, and Abimelech rose with Phicol, the commander of his army, and they returned to the land of the Philistines, and Abraham planted a tamarisk tree there in Beersheba, and called on the name of the Lord. So indicating, it seems, worship taking place there in Beersheba. It says, he called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And the first time that we see that mention of God described there, the idea of the eternal quality of God. Abraham, again, continuing to recognize he gets to know God more, more and more attributes about God. He called on the name of Jehovah, El Elohim, the everlasting God. And Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines for many days. Now, 
chronologically, there is probably about a gap of somewhere between 20 to 30 years between chapter 21, the end of it, and the beginning of chapter 22. We know at the beginning of chapter 23, verse 1, that Sarah dies, and it says she dies when she is 127 years old. Now, we know that Sarah had Isaac when she was how old? 90. So at that point, chapter 23, verse 1, Isaac's 37 years old. So it seemed, and it seems chapter 23 follows chronologically kind of right on the heels of chapter 22. So it would seem there's somewhere about a good 20, maybe 25 year gap that takes place between the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 22. And of course, we know probably one of the most, you know, in the top 10 important, famous, you know, valuable chapters, a real mountaintop peak chapter in the Bible, Genesis chapter 22, uh, this chapter dealing with God asking of Abraham this tremendous test of his loyalty and his faith and his commitment to God. Uh, and think about this. We know what God's going to ask him to do. It tells us, chapter 22, verse 1, it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham. And he said to him, Abraham, and Abraham said, here I am. And he said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. So again, take note, verse 22, uh, chapter 22, verse 1, God tested Abraham. Please take note, this whole thing is a test. That's what it is from the very start from God's perspective. It's a, it's a test. It's something that God is putting Abraham through to allow it to be revealed what is on the inside, where he's at in his journey with the Lord. Again, people go, oh, that's horrible. How could God ask for human sacrifice? This, this, God knew all along what was going to unfold. Granted, Abraham was living it out. But put yourself in Abraham's sandals for a minute. Here is Abraham and Sarah. How long did they wait for this promise? 25 years. 25 years they wait for the promise of God. Now they finally get Isaac. And now he's been enjoying the promise of God for another 25 or so years. Because Isaac at this point is about probably in his 20s to maybe early 30s. So he waits 25 years for God's promise. And now he's enjoying and getting very used to the promise of God and having this treasured special son, he and Sarah. And now all of a sudden, he hears the voice of God speak to him, no doubt something, would you agree, that would totally contradict everything in his being as a father, even as a man of faith and what he knows about God. All of a sudden now, it says that God tests Abraham and says to him, Abraham, take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I'll tell you about. And no doubt as Abraham hears this, you can imagine in his mind the tremendous conflict that this is for him to hear God say, God. How could that be possible that that's your plan? And maybe he's more spiritual than you and I, but I, I can begin, if he's anything like us, to, to try and relate in some way as a father, as a man of faith, knowing who God is and what God's nature is like, that this sounds illogical. Again, what is it? It is a tremendous test of his faith. We're going to see this is a test of his obedience, a test of his sacrifice, because now God comes to him on the place of the most important, precious thing in his life. And he says, Abraham, now that you have the most precious thing in your life, are you willing to give that back to me? Are you willing to offer it back to me? Are you willing to let me have the most precious thing that you've been waiting all this time for? And again, keep in mind, this, this all is in relation to the plan of God. And so important, not that we just look at this and think, well, this is the way God works, that God says, well, I've given you a child, now can I have your child back? No, no, we're, we're misunderstanding. This is the promised child through which the entire Jewish race and the Messiah would come. Yes, there's an element of this that it's his child on a personal level, and we can relate to that as parents. But this is much bigger than this. 
He knows the plan of God through Isaac, your seed shall be called. So in his mind, he's thinking, wait a minute. How could you ask me to offer my son to you when my son is the one through which the whole plan of God must come to pass? You're asking me to put the entire plan of God on the altar and to sacrifice that. And the tremendous conflict that would be in his mind to hear these things. And, and again, as we look at this, of course, we see the tremendous symbolism, how all this is an incredible typology of what God the Father ultimately does with his own son, Jesus Christ. Only God doesn't restrain at the end the way God allows this father in a brokenhearted spot to restrain. God completely goes the full route and offers his own son. But again, as you look at the language, take your son, your only son whom you love. Interesting. Take notice too. Your son, your only son. Well, that should be interesting. No mention of Ishmael. Your only son. But what is it indicating? That God doesn't recognize the son of his flesh. Because God does not ever accept or recognize the works of our flesh. He says, your son, your only son. And, and, and God recognizes the works of faith and that which is done by his spirit in our life. But the works of the flesh, God doesn't even acknowledge them. He doesn't accept the works of our flesh. So he says, take your son, your only son, whom you love. Interesting, first time the word love shows up in the Bible. First time. It's not the love of a mother for a child. It's not the love between a husband and a wife. It's not the love of any other type. The first time the word love becomes in the Bible, it's the love between a father and a son, the love of a father for a son. Why? Because really that's the origin of love. The first type of love that ever existed was a love of, between a father and a son, between God the Father and God the Son. And that's the origin, the basis of love. It's a love that's based on ultimately sacrifice because it will be a tremendous sacrifice for Abraham. And of course, it was ultimately for God the Father to experience this because of the depths of love. So take your son whom you love, go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I tell you again, verse three. So Abraham rose early in the morning, and I'm sure it was a long night. Probably half, part of the reason he rose early here is because he couldn't even sleep. If you can imagine him wrestling through this, Lord, how could, how could this possibly be? But Lord, if this is what you're asking me, I'll, I'll do it out of obedience. But what's Sarah going to think? And, 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 and all the things that he would be going through is here God is t touching on the most precious thing in his life and asking him to turn, him turn it back over to God. And I don't know about you, but sometimes the Lord on occasion may do that. The Lord comes into our life and, you know, whatever the Isaac may be in our life, something that becomes so important to us may not necessarily be a bad thing. It wasn't like this was a, you know, a bad habit God wanted him to get rid of. This was just something that became very precious to him, very important to him. Sometimes we kind of have the Isaac in our life, something that's so precious to us. It's so important. It's so cherished. And God says, well, I, I gave that to you, right? Oh, yeah, Lord, and I'm so thankful. This, this is totally from you. And he says, okay, well, if I gave that to you, would you be willing to let go of it now? Would you be willing to give it back? Though you love it so much and you've become so attached to it and it's such a wonderful thing in your life, would you be willing to give it back to me and to sacrifice it back over to me if I want you to let go of it now? where God tests our hearts in some ways between do we care more about his gifts or do we care more about the giver himself and our relationship with the Lord. And, and we kind of have our Isaacs at time that God may say, look, are you willing to let go of this? Are you willing to give it back to me? And Abraham deals with this. He rises in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son, and split the wood for the burnt offering and he arose and went to the place, notice, of which God had told him. So interesting, verse 3, God says, go to the mountain, I will tell you, verse 2. And then verse 3, it says he gets up the next morning, gets the wood, splits it, prepares all the supplies, and it says he went to the place which God told him, past tense. So is it possible overnight, is there praying and working through this whole thing that, Abraham received more direction from the Lord where now he knows where he's supposed to go. It says he went to the place of which God told him. Verse 4, and on the third day, and no mistake about that, on the third day Abraham lifted his eyes and he saw the place afar off. 
Notice, on the third day, he gets to the place where this offering will take place. And again, no coincidence there, the third day. Why? Because Jesus rose on the third day. And for three days, guess what? For three days during that journey, Isaac was as good as dead in the mind of Abraham. In Abraham's mind, for those three days while he's journeying to that spot, his son is dead in his mind. He's made up his mind he's going to obey God. He's going to do this. You know, it's interesting, Hebrews chapter 11 gives us this commentary. Listen to what Hebrews 11 says, verse 17 and 19. It says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called. Concluding, this is interesting commentary the Holy Spirit gives, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. In other words, Abraham went through this process, the Bible tells us, in faith and obedience, though he did not understand, but realizing in Isaac his seed would be called, he went through this process in faith, that was how he obeyed, believing, you know what, Lord, I don't know how this is all going to work out, but in Isaac, you said my seed would be called, and that's how the plan of God is supposed to unfold. So that means if you're asking me to put to death my son, then that means that you're going to have to raise him from the dead. There's no other option. Lord, I have to believe that if you're asking me to let go of this, that you're able to make it come back to life. And for three days, interesting, it says he was concluding that God was able to raise him from the dead. He was dead in his mind. But on the third day, interesting, is the day that this death and somewhat of a coming back to life as he receives his son back, as we'll see as the verses go on, took place. So Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we, notice, he says very confidently, and we will come back to you. He tells the two servants at a certain point, listen, you stay here, me and my son, we're going to go worship up on the mountain and we will come back to you. Again, Abraham knows what he's about to do, but it shows you where his heart was at in faith. He had a firm conviction that God was able to raise his son from the dead if God was going to ask him to put the death and to sacrifice what was so precious to him, he knew, then you know what, Lord, I don't understand how, but I'm going to trust you. You're going to have to restore his life. You're going to have to bring it back to the dead if you're asking me to let it go. You're going to have to resurrect him somehow. So he says with complete confidence to the two servants, this is a private matter. You stay here. The lad and I will go worship, and we will then return back to you here. Again, interesting to take note, the first time in the Bible that we see the word worship show up. And as I said before, when we see a word a first time, it sets the clearest tone and context for how God intends for that word to be understood. Now, here's the first time the word worship shows up in the Bible, showing us what worship really means. That word worship that's used there in verse 5, literally, the language means to just bow down. The idea is to bow down in homage in submission and surrender before a king, which shows us what really, biblically, theologically, true worship is. True worship is us bowing down our will and surrendering our way and saying, God, I want your will and your way more than my will and my way. And in obedience and faith, being able to say, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. Think about it. What was Abraham and Isaac about to do? They were heading up that mountain. They had no guitar. They had no, you know, gahon drum. They were going to go up there and sit up there and sing a few praise songs and have a Bible study and eat some donuts and say, we had a worship service. That wasn't going to happen, right? There was no singing. There was no Bible study. But they were going to go worship. Again, Jesus says, my father is seeking worshipers, and he says, those who worship in spirit and truth. A lot, you know, we call what we do on a Sunday morning gathering, we call that a worship service, right? 
and we call a lot of times the musical portion of the worship service, that's the worship. Those are the worship leaders, or we're going to have a time of worship. And we use these terms, but I think it's important that we keep a clear understanding of what worship really means to God. Again, can singing be an expression of worship and an avenue and a vehicle to offer worship to God? Absolutely. Can studying the Word of God together and listening through the ministry of the Holy Spirit be an act of worship to God? Absolutely. These can all, can giving our resources be an act of, all these things can be an act of worship to God, but they also can be done in a form where really they're not worship at all. Jesus said, you can honor me with your lips and your heart is far from me. So we can sing a whole bunch of songs and we can listen to a Bible study and, and we can even give money and do the whole thing and it really not be an act of worship if we're doing it with an unsurrendered heart that's detached from the real reason and proper motivation of why we're doing it. We're just going through religious motions. God says, look, there's something about worship that is much deeper. And that's so important for us to realize that, you know, that, that the true intention of worship, whether it's through the music, through the word of God, through everything that we do in a meeting or whatever, again, and we don't even have to be having a meeting to have worship. These were, this was two people. You know, God sees worship as the sacrifice of our will. So it, it, when we sing songs and we have a musical portion of a, a, a meeting as a church, well, the, the whole purpose and intention of singing those songs is to bow down our heart before the Lord and to give him praise and glory and to have our heart come to a place where through the music and singing those songs with meaning from our hearts, thinking about what we're saying, paying attention to what's going on, where our heart goes from a place where maybe it was kind of a little hard when we came walking through the door, or, or maybe we've been kind of living a little disobedient, where we come to the place before the Lord in his presence again, where through the singing and the music, we bow down our heart to the Lord and we say, Lord, I'm, I just... Lord, I just, I surrender afresh again. And Lord, I just, you know, soften my heart and I want your will in my life, not my will. And that through the music, that would be the experience that takes place. And see, that's so important for us as worshipers and for those of you who lead worship, when God gives you that opportunity to lead the musical portion of the service, understand that's the whole goal. Not to just get up and play a couple tunes. Well, that guy's really gifted. That drummer, he's really amazing. And listen, if I want a concert, I'll pay 20 bucks and go watch somebody. The goal of someone who stands before God's people to lead in the musical portion of a gathering of God's people is, yes, to play skillfully with a shout of joy and get people to participate. But the idea is to cultivate an atmosphere of worship whereby under the anointing of the Spirit and the skillful usage of gifts and abilities God has given someone as a musician and a singer, that that individual or team is being used in such a way where they help people to bow down their human stubborn will, which we all have, right, <laughs> all week long, to get to that place where their heart just becomes surrendered to the Lord again. And through the music and the lyrics and the songs and the spiritual experience that their heart is saying, Lord, we just surrender. You're worthy because of who you are, Lord. You're holy, holy, holy. And I'm not, Lord. And, and, and our heart comes in that place that through the music. Same thing with the Word of God. Again, I, I, don't, I don't want to become nothing more than just an individual who stands up and gives theological lectures. And, and where you know, church and gatherings of Christians, we become like a Bible institute. Where all we want is just head knowledge? I want the, the communication of the word of God to be something whereby as the word of God goes forth, I hope in the anointing of the spirit of God, it, it like a two-edged sword, it, it lays open people's hearts. And through the teaching of the word, there's correction and instruction and reproof and, and challenge and encouragement in such a way where through hearing the word of God, our heart becomes softened and we have a desire to say, Lord, oh, this area has not been in line with your will, and Lord, I want to be obedient. Lord, I want your will for my life. And that we would want to respond to what the Word of God says. Like when Peter preached after Pentecost, it says he, he preached, and the people says we're cut to the heart, and they said, what shall we do? Man, that's, that's good. When the Word of God goes forth, and the response to the Word of God is, Lord, what shall we do? Not that was great information. What shall we do? How shall we respond? How can we in worship, Lord, try and be a doer of the word and obey that? 
and that the, the conveying and communication of the Word of God would accomplish those things. And again, I, I, I camp on this because it is such an important thing because we really have a mixed concept today of what we just kind of loosely throw around as worship. And Jesus said, John 4, the Father seeking worshipers. Let's say he's seeking workers. Let's say he's seeking witnesses. And, and, and we're loaded to bear with activity in the church today. You know, we got this and that and programs in it, but, but I think we're losing the valuable, valuable point of God wants us to be worshipers and people who understand what worship really is so that even as we do participate in what we do, that our heart is in the right place. Those who are participating and, and those of us who are leading that we really recognize this. And such a beautiful thing. Here are these two individuals, this father and this son, and they're going to go up on the mountain and they're going to worship. And they're going to do nothing other than deny their feelings, deny their emotions, and in an act of total faith and total sacrifice and obedience to God, they're going to lay down their will and accept and embrace God's will instead of their own as an act of loving devotion towards God. And, and that is what the Bible pictures for us as worship. The lad and I will go yonder and worship and we will come back to you. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and he laid it on Isaac. Interesting picture. Isaac now is carrying the wood. Uh, no doubt a beautiful reminder of how ultimately Jesus would bear the wood of the cross as he would carry the cross on his own shoulders. Isaac now has the wood laid upon his shoulders. And it says, And Abraham took the fire in his hand and the knife, whereby he knew that he would plunge into the chest of his son to put him to death. And the two of them, <coughs> excuse me, went together. But Isaac, verse 7, spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Look, the fire and the wood... So he realizes they're about to make a sacrifice. Isaac understands, again, that there is no such thing as worship that does not involve the shedding of blood and sacrifice. Isaac understands this. They've made sacrifices before. He, the wood is here. The fire is here. If we're going to worship God, that involves sacrifice. It's a part of worship, sacrifice. So he says, look, the fire and the wood, Father, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Where's the sacrificial animal, Father? Where's the lamb? Interesting, he asks, where is the lamb for the burnt offering? First time the word lamb shows up in the Bible. Is that a perfect chapter for it to show up in or what? Here's this question, where is the lamb for the offering? You know the first time the word lamb shows up in the New Testament? It's not in Matthew. It's not in Mark. It's not in Luke. It's not till John chapter 1. And it shows up in this way where John the Baptist the forerunner of Jesus, points to Jesus, John chapter 1, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How amazing is that? The question from Genesis 22 on Mount Moriah, the place which is really modern-day Calvary, the place of Golgotha, the place where Jesus was ultimately crucified thousands of years later, the question rings out from this son, who is a prefigurement and a type of Christ, Father, where is the lamb? And the question comes, the answer to that in the New Testament, behold the lamb of God pointing to Jesus who takes away the sin of the world. Where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Verse 8, Abraham said to Isaac, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. So Abraham answers his son. Again, is there a lump in his throat at this point? He didn't read the rest of the chapter like we did. Abraham's living this out, and he says, my son, God will provide, he says, a lamb for a burnt offering. He was trusting that somehow God was going to work this process out. Interesting, he says, God will provide a lamb if you know the story a few verses down, what ends up in the thicket and the bushes that they go and get for a sacrifice, what is it? It's a ram. It's a ram. He says God will provide a lamb. Again, was the Spirit of God indicating something to Abraham? There was something way bigger than himself that's going on because God didn't provide a lamb. He provided a ram, technically, for the offering. 
because the ultimate lamb was the lamb of God, Jesus Christ himself, where the father didn't get to refrain from offering his son and putting to death his son here. So God will provide a lamb. And then it says here, verse 9, that they came to the place which God had told him. Somehow Abraham sensed that there was a location he was to go to there on Moriah. And again, we can't be certain. We know this is the mount. This is the territory where Jesus was ultimately crucified. I believe it's very likely it was at that same location as God was preparing something in a figurative sense here. And Abraham built an altar, and I bet he took his time as a broken-hearted father, and he placed the wood in order, and he bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. So at some point, there's something that takes place where this father has to say to his son, Son, listen, I need you to turn around and I need to tie your hands up. And, and somehow there's this recognition between the two of them what's about to take place here. Again, interesting that it's totally silent in regards to the Bible giving us any information of the dialogue that took place between this father and his son other than that they realized what was about to happen. Now, take note here. It says that Abraham bound Isaac, his son, and then laid him on the altar of sacrifice. What did I say earlier? At this point, Isaac is probably somewhere between 25 to 35 years old. A lot of times in Sunday school drawings and coloring books, there's this picture of Isaac where he's like a little five or six-year-old kid. That's not the case. Isaac was probably a 25 to 35-year-old man. How old is his father? He's over 100 years old. My point is this. Isaac could have very easily said, uh, I don't know what you're thinking, Pops, but that's... <laughs> I am not down. I mean, he could have very easily overpowered his father and said, I don't know what you're thinking about, but we're not doing what you're thinking with those ropes there. Because it just says here in the text, you know, well, he bound his son, almost as if like he's this little five-year-old kindergarten boy and he could just put his knee on him and tie up his hands. And that's not the case. Listen, that makes the story that much beautiful because the point here simply I'm trying to convey is that Isaac willingly consented to this. He willingly surrendered his life as the sacrifice. He willingly, in obedience to his father, and in faith and compliance with the plan and the will of God, said, Okay, Father, I don't understand this. And son, this breaks my heart, but you must be the sacrifice. You must die to fulfill the plan of God. Interesting, reminds us of what Jesus said in John chapter 10. Listen to the words of Jesus. Jesus said, therefore, my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This command I receive from my father, just like Jesus. Jesus was bound in the gospels, it says. But do you really think those ropes that they bound Jesus with when they arrested him were what was holding him? Of course, absolutely not. He was the son of God. He could have what was Jesus bound by? He was bound by his love for you and I. And Jesus was bound by his desire to be obedient to his father. That he willingly, the Bible says, he became obedient to death, even death on the cross. He willingly allowed himself to go through and become the sacrifice that was offered. So here Isaac is bound. He now lays upon the altar. Abraham now stretches his hand upward, it says, and took the knife to slay his son. Again, imagine looking down into each other's eyes, the emotional moment. His hand is raised, ready to plunge the knife into his son. And the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said to him, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he probably said, phew. <laughs> Thank goodness. And Isaac said, Phew, you're telling me. You know, I'm sure it wasn't that. You've got to make it lighter somehow. But here he's, God speaks to him. Verse 12, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son. Again, notice your only son from me. And then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. 
So as Abraham's about to plunge the knife, God says, okay, <clears throat> test passed. This was just a test. God says, restrain your hand. God intervenes. He speaks to him. He says, stop. Now I know, and now you know, where we're at in relationship. And again, I don't think it's necessarily that God was trying to figure out where Abraham's heart was at. He's God. But a lot of times God puts us through tests to show us where we're at and to allow us to see where we're at, again, maybe with the Isaac in our life. What are we willing to not withhold from God and give back to God or surrender over to God in an effort to be obedient, to sacrifice, and to honor the Lord in loyalty and in faith? And he says, Abraham, stop don't lay your hand upon the child, he says. I know that you fear God. You have not withheld your son. And Abraham turns. He probably hears an animal over the bushes, and he goes and gets that, and they sacrifice the animal instead. Now, very important thing that I don't want you to miss here. How important it was for Abraham to be current with the Lord. And here's my point in this. Consider. Abraham's hand, is he has gone through this whole process from the first moment he heard God say what sounded like the craziest thing we can imagine to hear God say, take your son, your only son, the most precious thing that you have in your life. It's so important to you. The entire plan of God hinges upon this thing. And I want you now in faith to do something that seems completely illogical, trusting me. And he's worked through the whole thing. He's walked it out in obedience. You know, one man said this. I have this quote written down here. Our faith is not really tested until God asks us to bear what seems unbearable, to do what seems unreasonable, and to expect what seems impossible. Abraham's gone through this whole process. The knife is in the air. And now God speaks to him and he says, Abraham, stop. Don't do it wait a minute, that's a real conflicting signal. After all I've gone through, after all the sacrifice and self-denial and the place I've come to, now you're saying don't do it? Now you're saying stop? And listen, what if Abraham, not being current with the Lord, would have said that can't be the voice of God telling me to stop? And he would have just plunged the knife down. I know what God told me to do. He would have made a bloody mess. No pun intended. He would have made a bloody mess. Did God tell him to do everything he had done so far? Absolutely. Up to that point, he had sacrificed, walked in obedience, walked it out in faith, the whole test. But he would have blew the extra credit portion, the most important part of the entire test, and failed the whole thing if he did not remain current with the voice of the Lord. Because it was not God's will for him to ultimately go through with it. It was something God took him through in a whole process relationally. It was something that God was doing. There was a type, there was a picture in it, all, but it was not God's ultimate intention for him to go through in this particular situation with that process. God said, I did ask you to do that, but now I'm telling you to stop. And see, sometimes that's how the work of the Lord may happen in our lives. Sometimes the Lord may tell us to do something and it may mean sacrifices and steps of faith and obedience and for a season we're walking it out and that's the will of the Lord. That's the plan of God. But does not God have the right, if he's God, at some point to say, but now stop. I did ask you to do that, but now I'm telling you stop. There was something that I was doing between my heart and your heart and I wanted to see where you're at and I wanted you to see where you would go. I wanted to see if you'd be willing, Abraham. I wanted to see, if would you withhold from me your son, your only son? But now I see. I see where your heart's at. And I see that you won't. So therefore, Abraham, now I'm asking you to stop. And listen, I say that to say this. Stay current with the Lord. Don't get in this place where you're living like so stubbornly off of what God said to you last year or 10 years ago or maybe even 10 days ago or maybe even 10 hours ago. You need to listen and I need to obey and respond to what God's telling us in the hour. Because God may say, do it, do it, do it. And then God may say, nope, but now don't go through with it. Now stop. 
I just wanted to see where your heart was at, let you see where your heart was at, and there was something as a bigger picture that I was doing. Now I know, I see that you would not withhold this from me. And listen, because we can make a big mistake if we just start going through with things sometimes that God says, look, it wasn't my intention for you to ultimately go through with that. It was just something that I was doing between you and I. Again, what does this go back to? That's worship. That's worship. Because Abraham had to humbly come to the place where he realized, and I'm sure he was grateful, but he had to humbly process, okay, I did what God asked me to do, but now bowing down my will is to say, okay, now, now I believe God's told me to stop and, and to do that. And so important this whole process here. Again, we'll, we'll have to pick up next time, but just what a great chapter, again, as you read through it. Think about as you read through Genesis chapter 22, and maybe do it tomorrow or someday this week, and, and I, think about the reality of what it was like for the heart of the Father. A lot of times we read the New Testament, we think about the sacrifice of Jesus and what it was like to Jesus to make that sacrifice. Genesis chapter 22, it's almost as if it gives us an insight into the heart of the Father. Because again, it tells us in Romans chapter 8, I'll leave you with this verse regarding God. It says, He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? God told Abraham to stop. God didn't stop with his son. God didn't spare his son. He gave his son for the benefit of you and I. And, and the grief of the heart of the father, what it must have been like to let go of his only son. We can't even begin to fathom what that must have been like. And I think Genesis 22 gives us a kind of an insight and a meditation upon that. Father, thank you for your word and chance to study it tonight. We ask, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will continue to use it even as we lie in bed tonight and throughout the remainder of this week to continue to give us insights and greater understandings of what it means to worship you and to walk with you in ways that are pleasing. And help us, Lord, help us not to be willing to withhold anything from you. Lord, everything belongs to you. Even our most cherished things, help us to keep a light touch and a loose grip on everything in our lives for your namesake. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.